Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! So these three drunk men walk into a brothel. When the madam notices them fast approaching, she instructs the girls to just throw some blow-up dolls into the apartment and turn off the lights. The boys are so drunk that they won't be able to tell the difference. So 30 minutes later, the fellas are back out in the street. The first drunk says, My girl was passed out. She never made a peep. The second drunk shouts, Mine was dead. She never made a move the muscle. The third drunk leans in and whispers conspiratorially, Them's was witches. Witches, the other two say in unison. The third one said, Yep, I bit mine in the ass. She farted in my face and flew out the window. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime, paranormal, interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I am your host, a man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the Bruiser Bronson, Dr. HR, Smoking Steen, THC, or you can call me Josh for short. And with me, as always, is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest smoking scene in the heart, expert of guts and gore, the gorgeous. The sexy Amy Rose Nearly didn't get it. get it in one this time. <laughs> How are you this week? Good until I started researching the next guy. I mean, he looks like a cross between Captain Noah Bano and Ron Jeremy. <laughs> no, we know about Ron. No, do you think he could be capable of being as evil as Frank Zito? Yep. I mean, like he is disgusting. How the fuck did that man become a sex icon? Yeah, imagine being the poor girl that has to go to work and finds out you have to work with him for the day. I assume it would be the equivalent of going to work as a hospital cleaner during an explosive diarrhea episode and then being told you've got to clean the toilets and the bedpans for the day with a toothbrush and no gloves. Very specific. Yep. Actually, it sounds more appealing than even being so much as in the same room as Ron Jeremy. For all of you innocent souls that don't know, Ron Jeremy is a pornographic actor who has been accused of sexual assault by over 12 women. How many credits do you reckon this guy's got to his name for porn only? I'd imagine it'd have to be in his thousands, like. Nine. No way. He's been in nine pornos. Inside Sika, the good girls of Godiva High. Godiva, what? Godiva. Godiva, hi. The Olympic Fever in 19... They were all in 1980. He was in Debbie Does Dallas Part 3 in 1981. Wanda Whips Wall Street in 1982. Flesh and Fantasy in 1985. (laughs) I knew this one was coming. Super Horny Old Brothers in 93. Yeah. John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut in 1994. I always thought his his movie was called Frank and Cock, to be honest with you. I might cover that in real our mini monsters this week <laughs> and uh, then he was in not the brady's triple x as sam the butcher in yeah. 2007 <laughs> to be fair he's the obvious choice for a super mario, super mario parody like, especially since captain new albano was the only live action mario at the time 
Looks like he played Luigi, though. His name is Squeegee Horneo. But then who played Mario? I don't know. One second. I'll look up. He technically is more of an actor than a pornographer with 65 film credits and 19 TV credits. And it's not just all trauma movies either, this guy's in. He's been in some big ones. He was the Ghostbusters, Go Off Auto Path 3, Boogie Nights. That's an obvious one. Yep. Boondock Saints. Oh, wait. These are all just small cameos. Any big role he has is low-budget comedy, really, yeah. So, did you, did you find Super Horny or Brothers yet? I have, and although the name does resemble Luigi, Jeremy's character was based on Mario, with the Luigi character being ba- being called Omeo Horneo. Omeo? Omeo Horneo. Horneo Horneo, is it? Orneo. Oh, Orneo. I read that as an M. I need my glasses. The programmer Squeegee Horneo based on Mario and his brother Orneo Horneo based on Luigi are teleported into Squeegee's in-development PC game after a freak power overload. <laughs> after regaining their bearings, Squeegee figures out and explains to Orneo that they are stuck in the black void of a computer monitor when it's turned off. And this was this all in 19... 19- like Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> and this was in... What did I say? This was in, this was in 1993. 1993, okay. Ah, they had the idea for Wreck-It Ralph before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, computer virus informs the brothers that King Pooper, based on Bowser, <laughs> also known as King Koopa, has kidnapped Princess Perlina. King Pooper intends on forcefully having Perlina help him travel to Earth with a tub full of semen energized by a special generator. <laughs> Squeegee. It's a hot tub time machine <laughs> or just full of calm. Yeah. <laughs> Squeegee and Arneo travel through the computer world encountering other villains who attempt to delay them and hamper their efforts. Squeegee is temporarily separated from his brother in the process finding King Pooper's lair first. Squeegee attempts to free Princess Perlina only to be found by King Pooper. Attempting to fight King Pooper alone, Squeegee is about to lose when Orneo reappears and shoves King Pooper into the tub where he melts and dies. The brothers ask Princess Perlina to teleport them back to Earth, but Perlina only transports herself and Orneo back, leaving Squeegee behind in the cyber world. Attempting to manipulate the generator to get back to the real world, Squeegee is confronted and appears to be captured by a revived King pooper i can't imagine there's many porn deaths this is it sounds like a fucking fairly riveting story it sounds I'm better not than, watching it. it sounds better than the actual super mario <laughs> 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 and it ends on a cliffhanger so there can't be a sequel though because unless you recast jeremy well you don't have to wait long because there is already a sequel and jeremy reprises his role so you better go back and check your sources stupid wikipedia could be because they were shot back to back and released the same year. Like maybe that's why the Donalds won't credit. Okay. Anyway, in this installment, Princess Perlina and Orneo teleport back to Squeegee's office. Wondering where Squeegee is, Orneo is distracted by Princess Perlina, offering sex as a reward for saving her from King Pooper. See, this sounds like the porn version of what we just heard of <laughs> beforehand. The other <laughs> one had no sex in it. From the description, the description of it had no sex in it. I'm- just the tub full of comp. Yeah, weird. <laughs> After sexual intercourse, Orneo and P- asks Perlina to bring Squeegee back to the real world. The teleportation goes horribly wrong. Perlina teleports both Squeegee and King Pooper just as King Pooper confronts Squeegee at the generator seen at the end of Super Horneo Brothers. So they, they keep canon here. They keep everything in line. Oh, yeah, the storyline yeah. keeps going. Yeah. King Pooper escapes and he begins to enact his ultimate goal, bluntly explained by Perlina to the Horneo brothers as to procreate and create more King Pooper offspring. 
Wild King. I wouldn't. Uh, not with a man whose second name is Pooper. <laughs> <laughs> Wild King Pooper hires a prostitute to start his plan. Squeegee theorizes that the generator is the key to King Pooper's scheme and draws up plans to destroy it. Mimicking what they did in the first time round, Squeegee and Arneo teleport back into the computer. Guided by the computer vi- virus, Arneo distracts a hooker, which allows Squeegee and the computer virus to go back to King Pooper's lair. They obviously went into GTA 5 or something. Yep. <laughs> Clearly. Squeegee comes up with a plan to thwart King Pooper by having the computer virus overload the generator and knock it out. The computer virus rubs his body against the machine, causing it to overload. So the, the, the computer virus is a physical person. <laughs> Somebody got the wrong end of the stick here. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Squeegee explains to Arneo and Princess Perlina back in the real world that by overloading the generator King Pooper is now in a state of limbo and won't cause any more trouble ecstatic Princess Perlina embraces and hugs Arneo while ignoring Squeegee a spurned Squeegee turns to the camera and says that he didn't expect the film to end this way <laughs> poor Squeegee well, that's good. poor Squeegee's Ron Jeremy Oh yeah, no, no. It would have been Squeegee. better off they had left him in the computer for universe. Luigi was that he was Orneo, so because he sounds like Luigi. It's stupid. Why the fuck would they call Orneo? So Luigi is Mar- supposed to be Mario. N- yeah. And Princess Perlina gets with the Luigi character. Yeah, that's the twist at the end of the movie. Okay. And again, still sounds like I a better movie than needed a twist. It's a no. Well, I suppose the twist being that the better looking Mario brother got the the girl instead of Jeremy just oh, yeah. taking off of her. That, you know, because yeah. yeah. let's face it, nobody wants to see around Jeremy have sex. No, nobody. And do you know what I want to know? Mm. Why, in God's name, in the nineties, were people so obsessed with story? Like this is this sounds like a detail. They had to hire a writer to do this movie. Had to. <sighs> I don't know. To come up with that storyline? Probably. They had to hire a writer. Clearly. Why did, did they need these stories? Was it just to hide what they were doing? Does anybody because really of the watch shame them I don't know. I was a child in the 90s. I wasn't allowed to watch these kind of things. I'm still not allowed to watch <laughs> these kind of things. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it's good they got to finish the story before Jeremy got in trouble. Hate to see a show get cancelled on a cliffhanger. Yeah, well, he's in trouble now. And the only solace I take from all this is that him only having nine credits means he slept with a lot less women than I thought. And explains all the rape and sexual assaults then. I wondered how he could, you know, be having that much sex and still find the energy to get in trouble for having even more sex. Mm. I thought he just walked around all day popping Viagra and cocaine, to be honest. Probably did. <laughs> uh, I always pictured him as being constantly sweating, like. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he's been accused of a lot more than just 12. He's been done for 12 assaults of girls ranging from the age of just 15 years old up to 54 years old over a period of 16 years from 2004 until 2020 but there's dozens more accusations coming in so 2004 that'd be his last credit as well wouldn't it did I say 2004 was his last 2007 credit 2007 um, boogie nights no 2007 three years later would have been his last porno credit hmm so, uh, looks like he's trying to play the insanity card too. He's keeping, he keeps getting the trial pushed back, having doctors testify that he's incoherent and not fit to stand trial. He's currently a free man, technically, per California law. Uh, the Los Angeles District's Attorney Office stated that Jeremy can be committed for up to two years. Okay. But while waiting in jail for assignment to a state medical facility for months on November 17, 2023, a judge granted a request to release Jeremy to a private residence 
months where he will receive care. He did. This is where he currently resides. So if he just plays crazy for two years, do they have to release him and he gets off without doing any jail time? No idea. Hopefully not. I hope the doctors and judge will be smarter than Ron fucking Jeremy. Do you know? And nail a prick. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we talking about Ron Jeremy again? Because he could be Frank Zito's long lost brother. Oh, yeah. Frank Zito, a.k.a. the Mannequin Maniac, a.k.a. the Schizo Scalper, was an American serial killer who murdered a confirmed eight people in 1980, two women, six men, and is suspected of at least seven seven more, six of which are female, including that of his own mother, who, as always, plays a pivotal role from beyond the grave in fueling her son's dementia. You can't always blame the mother. We're all trying our best life. She was a single mother who worked as a prostitute using the apartment she shared with her son as her place of business or bringing him along with her when she hit the streets mm-hmm. trolling for Johns. Okay. So young Frank saw his mom doing some wild shit from a very young age. Mm. Frank was the only child of Pellegrino and Carmen Zito. But before Frank was even two, his father died shot in a botched holdup. Shot being held up or shot while doing the holdup? Uh, shot from holding up the wrong person <laughs> see the man he held up just happened to be armed and as soon as he got a chance pulled his gun and shot Pellegrino square between the eyes yep this left the already struggling Carmen alone with a toddler to feed and care for with no real qualifications or training Carmen took to the streets hooking to pay her way I've seen pictures of her in the 60s and she was pretty hot in fairness she looked like to be her in her early 30s at the time I jump on 10 years and she looks like she's aged 20 she looked tough and she always had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth in every picture <laughs> every picture I could find of her and the scowl on her face I wouldn't have fucked with her <laughs> <laughs> well from the sounds of Frank's childhood you'd be the only one <laughs> <laughs> after being caught a badly injured Frank survived just long enough to get his story out there we'll get into how it happened but he was found stabbed in the stomach in his apartment after what his one surviving victim got away from him and tipped off the cops Although badly injured and on death's door, Frank survived another six months after capture before finally succumbing to complications from his injuries. He was in and out of a coma for half that time, but seemed to be on the road to recovery over the second three months as he confessed his story to investigators from his hospital bed. But passed from an infection in his intestines that his body didn't have the strength left to fight. But before he died, and while on medication, which caused the man once known as the maniac to briefly think Lucidly, Frank confessed to everything, and it is from this account we take our details today. kids can't get enough of that blood guts and gore then head on over to our patreon where for just five bucks a month you'll get exclusive access to our true crime show real monsters and horrific history tales from playing with bones with amy rose along with early access to our mini souls and ad free access to everything else all this and loads more horror-tastic extras from the horrorverse so what are you waiting for permission go nick your parents card today and subscribe now at patreon.com forward slash it's alive alive pod remember that's it's alive alive 
podcast, the really, really fake true crime horror podcast. It's alive, alive, all the guts and gore with none of the guilt. So Frank Zito was born February 14th, 1944, Valentine's Day. Making him perfect for last week's episode. Yeah, I already explained that last week. No need to reopen old wounds mm-hmm. here. So as I said... Frank was born into an underprivileged family in 1944, with his father dying two years later in 1946. When his mother Carmen started hooking is anyone's guess, but as it's all Frank can remember her ever doing, I'd assume it rather started before or straight after the death of her pickpocket husband. Frank said in particular two memories stand out from his childhood. I'll let our more tame audience know the next piece is a little graphic. The first memory of Carmen's promiscuity was when she and Frank were living in a little bedsit in Queens, New York. Frank said that usually he and Carmen would share the one bed in the small apartment, but on this occasion she suggested to Frank that he had a camp out for the night using the closet as a tent. So he was going to pretend to be camping, but inside the closet, closet, yeah. Later that night, Frank said he was woken by the sound of the apartment door opening. He said he opened the closet door just a crack and saw two men kissing and fondling his mother. Frank said he was horrified but couldn't look away. Seeing your parents have sex, like it's mildly traumatic but not completely earth shattering. I mean, they had to do it at least once to have had you, so surely it's not an incident that sets them off later. Yeah, sure, seeing it isn't nice, but I'm sure you could get over it. Thankfully, not something I've ever walked in on, but the story doesn't end there. After a few minutes of graphic sex, Carmen noticed that Frank was watching, like they made eye contact. She just put her hands to her lips, indicating to Frank to stay quiet, and proceeded to work over the two Johns for the next hour or so, all under the gaze of her young son. What age? Roughly five or six. Mm. Frank went on to tell investigators of an occasion where the usual babysitter cancelled and his mother seemed worried. Rent was due and she was short one good trick to make ends meet. Frank said she told him they were going to go in her friend's car that she had borrowed and that she was going to meet a friend. And when they got there, that he was to stay in the car while she took care of some business. He didn't listen. And as Carmen got real hard, Frank's words are not mine, he watched uh, and she again noticed him and told him to get back to the car. But she didn't stop what she was doing. Frank watched it all the way to climax as he watched his mother get to her knees and clean the leftover mess. Frank said it was a quiet drive home. I don't condone her actions in front of a child, but she's obviously desperate. And it may have been an awkward drive home, but if she didn't go out that night, there'd be no home to go home to. Yeah, true. According to Frank, after this event, though, Carmen became more diligent when it became to securing babysitters while she worked the streets. And eventually, through time and hard graft, Carmen built up a safe and regular clientele, allowing herself and Frank to move into a slightly bigger two-bedroom apartment. So she's making a decent living, at least. Not really. Carmen was a smart woman and chose safety over financial security. She'd see her few regulars at her apartment every week, just about making ends meet, only hitting the streets if a big bill was due or if emergency funds were needed. See, this is what mothers do. They provide and ensure their kids are warm and fed no matter what the cost. I mean, she isn't winning Mother of the Year anytime soon, but she was doing what she had to do, unfortunately. It was obviously not an easy life for her, but like I said earlier, the two pictures I saw were only a decade apart and they looked like they could have been 20 plus years apart. That wasn't all down to the hooking. You see, Frank was not an easy child. 
Although large as an adult, more beer belly overweight than tall, standing at 5 foot 11 inches. Frank was a small, weedy child who was often the target of bullying both at school and around his neighbourhood. Yeah, and looking like Ron Jeremy probably didn't help. I doubt he looked like that as a child, walking around with the tash and all. Yeah, beer belly, <laughs> tash. <laughs> Uh, while Frank's appearance didn't help his situation it was his mental health issues that made him a real target later we would find out that Frank suffered from severe schizophrenia so according to WebMD schizophrenia a wide ranging and often misdiagnosed mental illness lists symptoms ranging from hallucination and delusions to emotional flatness and catatonia it is one of the most common mental disorders diagnosed among criminals especially serial killers David Berkowitz, better known as the son of Sam, killed six people in the 1970s, claiming that his neighbor's dog had told him to do it. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Yeah, the dog was Sam. Oh, that's why he's son of Sam. Yeah. I thought Sam was just another name for the devil, to be Mm -hmm. honest. (laughs) He was on good terms with the devil. (laughs) The dog. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Ed Gein murdered and mutilated his victims, often keeping grisly trophies. If you want to hear more about that, check out Real Monsters on Patreon. Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, killed six people in California and drank their blood. And when we do that one on Patreon, Amy will not probably be in the house. I'll probably have threw that one like I did Peter Carton. Really? Is it that bad? He, they call him the vampire of Sacramento. One of those six people are a baby. No, okay, no, done. Sorry, no, done. (laughs) David Gonzalez killed four people in 2004 and claimed he'd been inspired by a nightmare on Elm Street. I've nothing to say about this one. I don't know who David Gonzalez is. Never heard of him. I read about him. Um, I think we we talked about him very, very briefly um, when we were talking about... Can't remember? No. Can't remember. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Jerry Lee Lochner convicted of killing six people and wounding 13, including U.S. Representative Gabriel Giffords in 2011, was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. See, if these are like mass shootings, I probably wouldn't hear about them. I don't, I, I pay attention to the serial killers. Mass shooters kind of go over my head because there's so many of them over there. Yeah, you know? yeah. I know this guy though. And James Egan Holmes, perpetrator of the Batman murders in Aurora, has been diagnosed with schizophrenia by 20 doctors. No shit, one look at him and you'd be like, yep, yeah, there's I was something just wrong with that guy. Say, but I didn't have to say it nicely. <laughs> so, untreated and in extreme situations, this illness can be very dangerous and sometimes deadly to not the sufferer, but for those who are in their direct vicinity. Frank, to everyone who wasn't his mother, was a shy, withdrawn child with no friends or social life to speak of. This coupled with the reality of his mother's profession, something the local neighborhood kids were well aware of and would not let Frank forget, Frank slipped deeper into a fantasy world. Frank collected dolls from a young age, like Barbie dolls and porcelain dolls and baby dolls. Fucking dolls again. Oh, what's, <laughs> what's with you and doll stories? Like two weeks ago, it was the Von Sturms. This week, it's Cito, and I don't think I haven't looked up that ridiculous possessed doll theory attached to the Light Lake Shore Strangler, Charles Lee, right? I know you're eyeing that story up too, mm-hmm. and I'm telling you now, Chucky isn't real, and the kid did it. <laughs> I'll take on Andy Backley, not right now, <laughs> though, because it's coming. Maybe this year, how many months is it, October? I fail to see how voodoo falls into true crime, but fine. Adolfo Costanzo, which we cover way back in episode three of Patreon exclusive true crime show, Real Monster. Fair point. But their magic didn't work, and Barkley alleges to this day that Chuckley isn't real. For those of you that don't know, the Lakeshore Strangler, Charles Lee Ray, also known as Chucky to his friends, 
Williams was a serial killer who operated throughout the 70s and 80s in New Jersey in the Chicago areas. Chucky and his girlfriend Tiffany Valentine were responsible for anywhere from 30 to 100 plus deaths throughout their bloody reign of terror. Mm. Charles was eventually identified and went to the mattresses, keeping his head low and keeping off the cops' radar. Yes, kids, in the 80s, you could do that. (laughs) In 1988, Ray was eventually spotted in Chicago and chased down to a toy store by Detective Mike Norris. A gunfight broke out between the two, with Norris taking Ray down and causing him to die amongst a display of good guy dolls, which were super popular interactive dolls in the 80s. We wouldn't have had them here in Ireland. We would have been too poor for that shit. We had the, 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 no the dolls that weed their pants. <laughs> uh, oh, what were they called again? Baby something. Baby wee wee? Something like that. The interesting thing here, though, is it turns out that Charles was a great believer in voodoo and often took part in voodoo rituals. This led to an urban legend that Chucky had moved his soul into a nearby good guy doll's body so as to live on as a psychotic killer doll. This legend was exasperated after the tragic death of a woman named Maggie Peterson. Maggie fell from the fifth floor of an apartment block after she allegedly slipped and fell through an open window. She was babysitting a six-year-old Andy Barkley at the time. Andy, who, like Frank, came from a single-parent low-income household, had just gotten a good guy doll the day of uh, that day for his birthday. His mother, a department store worker, Karen Barkley, had bought it from a homeless man who looted it from the Charles Lee Ray crime scene the previous night see it gets mm-hmm. interesting if that wasn't creepy enough tiny footprints were found at the accident scene they matched the doll's shoes and remember i said these were interactive dolls yeah well each doll had their own name preset so once switched on it spit out a few catchphrases usually hi i'm tommy want to play i like to be hugged hi ho and i want to be your friend to the end <laughs> oh yeah, sounds super weird. Yeah, well, Andy's doll mm-hmm. answered to the name Chucky and was known to spit out some extra phrases. I know what you're thinking, strange, but still not proof, except that over the years, Andy wasn't the only person to make this claim. And as time passed, more and more of Chucky's old foes died in mysterious ways. And at this point, there are anywhere from 10 to 20 witnesses to Chucky moving, talking in Ray's voice and violently murdering people. Ray's DNA was even found on a crime scene 10 years after his death, causing his grave to be exhumed and body tested just to make sure he was definitely dead. And was he? Sure was, but the men exhuming his grave were found shot dead in the grave with them, a good guy doll, with a bullet hole in its head. But not just any good guy doll, Andy fucking Barkley's good guy doll. Stolen from evidence by Tiffany Valentine and stitched back together in in an attempt to bring her old partner in crime back to life after hearing the crazy voodoo story. Along with them, Lieutenant Lawrence Preston was found at the graveside, his throat ripped open by an unidentified animal lying next to him was a female doll badly burned this female doll was found days after the body of tiffany valentine was found electrocuted in her bathtub after a portable tv she was watching fell in while she was bathing okay fair enough like, that all sounds like an interesting story oh just a tip of the iceberg you hear how excited i'm getting i can't wait until later this year <laughs> anyway back to frank and his fixation on dolls 
I, that's not all that abnormal. I, all kids play with dolls. I know it's gender fluid now and any kid can play with it, uh, any toy. But when we were kids, you can say what you want. But Action Man was just Army Barbie. <laughs> when you got Barbie, though, when you were younger, was she marketed as a single, strong, single, single woman? Or did she always come with Ken? Nah, she came with Action Man. She only faked with Ken. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Frank didn't play with these dolls like normal kids. He played with these dolls like Sid from Toy Story. Taking them apart and stitching them back together in different and more disturbing ways. This coupled with his antisocial behavior, he had started lashing out at the bullies, but not just hitting them back, trying to lure them into isolation and attack them with weapons. He got suspended for an attack with a hammer on another student and expelled from his last school for an attempted knife attack after he that yeah, after that he dropped out. And I think that makes him like 13, 14 at the time. Mm. I don't know what grade that would put him in but he'd be like first year second year student in yeah, Ireland. Ireland but like I was saying his antisocial behaviour along with the disturbing doll hobby forced his mother to seek help from the public health system America has a notoriously bad public health care system I can't imagine it's any better here and now in the 1970s no your options were bad weekly counselling sessions essentially more meetings to make sure you weren't a danger to society than to listen and help you in any way mm-hmm. and then there was the mental asylums now, we'll eventually talk more about the American mental health care system and asylums in the future when we talk about the Joker killer author Fleck, who would cause rioting around Gotham City in 1981 with his murders, culminating in him killing then TV talk show superstar Murray Franklin live on air mid-interview. But I would like to talk about the asylums at the time, all right? So just to give people a bit of context as to why Carmen will be a bit slow to let her son, you know, into the mental health care system. Yeah. It's not what it is today, you know, yeah. where people these days, if you've got a problem with your he- mental health, you can go, you can talk and you can get help and people will push you in the right direction. And usually your family and friends will kind of support you. Yeah, yeah. Back in this day not so much the same it's seen as taboo yeah yeah there's something wrong with you like yeah, and yeah. you're you're mad i think i say it here but you're marked for life like what so i learned a small bit about this when i was in college to become a special needs assistant we had to do mental health as a module and we did a class on the his- history of mental health and the asylums and it was some rough fucking shit mm. there's a reason why you see so many of these haunted asylums and all these ghost hunter shows and haunted youtube videos yeah uh, one thing that makes discussing the topic the, the topic so difficult is that our understanding of mental health has changed significantly over the course of the last century Terms like mentally ill and mentally retarded were often used interchangeably. Homosexuality was viewed as a sickness like a psychopathy or, or schizophrenia. Uh, addiction was and still is often seen as a moral or character failure instead of a health crisis that could affect anyone. Not now, is it Portugal that have changed that? Mm, it's decriminalized. It's decriminalized. And if you're um, an addict, no, they see it as someone who's sick and not somebody who's uh, causing, who's breaking the law. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll help you get help rather than put you in jail. Exactly, exactly. Sounds smarter to me. Yep. According to the 2022 Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, a mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotion regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or development processes underlying mental functioning. 
Sorry. Play. That was a mouthful. Fair play. <laughs> <laughs> Mental disorders are usually associated with significant distress or disability in social, occupational or other important activities. An expectable or a culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not a mental disorder. So basically they're saying like a short-term kind of craziness there by through grief or stress. It's not a mental disorder. You know, no, it's yeah. just somebody... Going through normal yeah, processes yeah. of, yeah. Dealing with shit. Exactly. <laughs> Socially deviant behavior, for example, political, religious, or sexual, and conflicts that are primarily between individual uh, between the individual and society are not mental disorders unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction in the individual as described above. See, I always had that kind of question myself when it came to um, the uh, getting off on, on, on insanity. Plea, the insanity plea yeah. for, for, for a thing because my thought process has always been do you not have to be a little crazy to be a serial killer to begin with again I Does know we mentioned him so much but I brain to they, begin with but uh, like BT would you say that, B, that, 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 that BTK was insane he shouldn't I understand or do you think in the minute that he was insane I wouldn't say that in the minute he was insane I think that everything was planned and, and cold and calculated and that makes him not insane it makes him fit to stand trial just a morally corrupt person evil yeah he, there is he was yeah, fucking, yeah, he's just pure fucking evil but that's what I'm saying yeah but see he stands out then as almost like a he's not the same as the rest of them but that's he's it. not like Bundy, he's not like Gacy, he's not like Dahmer, who you can pinpoint these issues they have. Mm. This was just a big fucking bored nerd who, who, who was boring, he had a bland personality, a bland life, and he thought he, he could be something bigger and this is how he was going to achieve it because it was the only thing he could do this, I suppose, was... I don't know, was it easy? I don't know if you would call what he does easy, but but it's the least amount of it. He doesn't have to go get trained. He doesn't have to be good at something. He doesn't have to be fucking, you know, liked by he, yeah. he This is his, his dream of becoming famous, and this is the way he's going to do it because he's got no talent to be famous in any other way. Do you know? Uh, yeah. It's his idea of leaving his mark on the fucking world. Like, and I, that's... I've always said fellas like that deserve the death penalty. Oh yeah, for sure, definitely. 100%. But then you look at Bundy, who is clearly fucking insane. The man was ranting and raving around the fucking courtroom. You look at Dahmer, who clearly has. Fun. We're in the middle Absolutely. of it now. Absolutely, he had he had there's, issues. There's, there's, there's background there that fucks things up. Gacy's touch and go. Gacy had an That's eye. calculated I, I, as well. Gacy is almost a thing of he tries to kind of use the excuse. Well, they kind of try and use the excuse for Gacy of it, it being that you know homosexuality was such a taboo thing at the time that he had to hide it by by killing these people afterwards. But from what I've heard, mm. he used to have like friends over. Like, it is heavily, heavily, heavily to yeah. taught that that the Gacy did not kill most uh, a lot of those people by himself. Mm. And that he was known to be a part of one of these mason lodges and all well, this. Then you like, can't claim insanity there either. And they, they, he used to have a rumpus room where they'd have stag parties. Uh, so they'd be showing porn and stuff. But uh, it was pretty much known like that, that those older fellas would get in younger guys like and show them the porn and then, you know, have their way with them. Mm. So, I mean, it's not so that I, I guess he again is touch and go. But I mean, uh, you look at like Ed Gein, you look at Dahmer, you look at Bundy to a degree. 
And it's like, well, I'm on the fence about Bundy. I don't know. I, I I think after everything we've read about him and everything we've seen him and listening to him talk, he was fucking raving mad. <laughs> he was barely holding it together. In I think he was just a narcissist. I think he was an absolute lunatic. I don't. I don't think. Do you remember after we watched the documentary last, mm-hmm. and the two of us looked at each other and said, "All right, this is the first time we've never understood the fear of Bundy." But after watching it, like, I am afraid of Ted Bundy. Like, yeah, and that's that's aggressive, narcissistic behavior. What we saw. That's why we were like, "Holy!" It, it, it but does was. that not count as mental health? Issues? But you see, that's the thing. I think. I think it clinically diagnosed narcissism, but it, I don't. It doesn't render you. Unf- I don't see how it would render you unfit to stand trial because. There's a bit of a narcissist in everything. It's just so complicated. I, it is the ins and outs, and the, no. especially when you bring mental health into it. It's, it's very... Because, like, I do, again, in my own head now, I'm like, yeah, I understand what you're saying. If Realistically, if they know the right... The difference between right and wrong, and they should be able to turn around and tell somebody, okay, I'm having these urges, I need help. Mm-hmm. And that would be the right thing to do. But if their brain isn't wired right, and the urges are telling them to do this fucking thing, is that not a dysfunction in your brain is that not your brain isn't working the same way as the rest of us so there's something wrong with your brain making you insane and I know the difference between insanity please and not insanity please the, mm. not insanity, the, the insanity please is the one where the person is just start raving fucking mad and incoherent and just temporary was a danger to himself just one. as much yeah. as everybody else around them yeah. and then you have the likes of like we were saying Ted Bunny and so that who made decisions to go out and plan pre-planned their, mm-hmm. their, their attacks and knew what they were doing the whole time they were doing it Yeah, I understand that but I'm just saying that you and me as regular people rarely if ever think I want to kill that person <laughs> and think about how they're going to do it and then start planning it do you know what I mean it is like because we're normal and our normal reaction is not to go there whereas theirs isn't because they have some disorder in the mm. brain be it narcissism be it fucking what's the other one that's schizophrenia the sociopath uh, sociopaths right do you know, do that's like, fine that's fine but if 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 that's what you're saying and you're taking that as as your as your defense, right? Mm. If it was a case where you were walking down the street someday and you were like everything was going fine, but then somebody passed you for whatever reason, you just went to fucking town on them, and this one that was your defense. Oh no, no, I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. But, I know it has to be. That. I was just saying my yeah. own brain. Okay, this is, I get this is you. more of a me thinking out okay, loud fucking situation. John, yeah. how do we tell which ones are really crazy? Because you you have to be crazy to do what they did to yeah, start with. Yeah. But again, would you not? say that for me someone who never lashes out at somebody in the street the way you just described for me to do something like that out of the blue out of nowhere I would, would you want not you... think to yourself he has went insane he has temporarily lost his mind I'd love to see if he gets you referred for like your brain scans and all I'd be like there's but like a tumor there see? that's I what I'm saying ask me some change yeah so I mean it, I don't know I mean obviously I know why the rules are in place because you can't have people like that walking around and if they do know the difference between right and wrong good and evil they do have that opportunity to, to, to stop themselves and say alright I need to go get help I mean like I said we said if you're a drug addict I, I think I've heard it best say that on last podcast mm. uh, Max says it fairly often because he's got mental health issues mm. and he said uh, I think the best way he puts it is when it comes to mental health it's not your fault that you're mentally ill, mm. but it's your responsibility once you know you're mentally ill to take to care of that it. fucking shit. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose that kind of answers my question for me. My, uh, there, it's a case of, you know, like Bundy knew there was something wrong mm-hmm. with him. 
he could have went and got medication to a doctor and got the medication to send him on the right route but he chose to go the other way and pick the evil direction so i understand yeah yeah okay i've answered my own question there and answered it for everyone else hey. too. <laughs> see if you leave me talk long enough i'll answer my own questions <laughs> <laughs> anyway you were saying about the institutions see yeah. i interrupt her right in in between her big lounge spiel <laughs> so the way we treat and house those with mental disorders has changed significantly too starting in the 1970s new york state government began a long-term deinstitutionalization de- effort of mental health services they sought to end large-scale institutions for people with mental disorders and transition to smaller regional community centers that are prevalent today I mean, look, you saw it in college yourself. Uh, the places were hell holes where the patients were often kept living in dirt and squalor and they were physically abused, mentally abused and sexually abused, malnourished, restrained or confined for inhumane lengths of time or often locked up and untreated and left to waste away inside the walls of the institution. Big problem being, though, once they were released and left out into the public, because I know you talk about these community centres that are there now and the stuff that are mm-hmm. so now, but to the most part, and I remember it in the 90s, these people just roam free. Yeah. They were not looked after. No. They weren't taken care of. A lot of them lived in the same dirt and squalor that they lived <coughs> in inside there, just on their own now with no one to, you know, mm. ensure that they got fed or ensure they got cleaned. But I remember, I don't know if you remember, but when we, because we, I grew up in the town, you grew up, I grew up in the country. Mm. People walking around the streets talking to themselves was uh, older people. Oh, it's Looking common. scruffy and yeah. rough. It, that was not uncommon back then. Yeah, it no. wasn't something you look at. It was just like you kind of steer. Well, no, you'd see some kids taking a piss out of them. That's not nice. I don't know. It wasn't nice, off, but again, yeah. it was just kind of the way it was in the 90s. You know, bands of children just roam free. <laughs> <laughs> and they could do what they wanted. And, and, and it's unfortunate because, again, like I said, it, it's not like there were these people were released from these institutions into like nice, nice accommodation and mm. stuff like that they they were kind of thrown back at their families yeah. if they had family yeah exactly and the families are throwing them in there because they didn't want them around to start with mm. so it's just yeah do you know yeah like we could do a whole episode on it and yeah. maybe we will on real monsters over patreon someday but it does sound like we have enough to talk about yeah, yeah I mean, we've been ranting on about this now for the last 10 minutes yep. but one example would be the willbrook state school which was a school for the mentally retarded and that's a quote <laughs> the backs up, operating from 1947 to 1987 on Staten Island. I don't, I don't think retarded is a bad word if it's used in a medical sense. I think he's still okay medically, isn't it? I don't I, know. I know here it's in quotations, but I think yeah. you can I don't know if you can use it in a mental situation, but I think you I can know. say physically retarded. Or something. I'm I not 100% sure on that. How's I'll look it up. Housing mostly younger children, it was built for 4,000, but reached a population of over 6,000 by the 1960s, making it the largest such facility in the world. When Robert Kennedy toured the school in 1965, he referred to it as a snake pit where children lived in conditions worse than animals in a zoo. Cruel and unethical studies wherein mentally handicapped children were purposefully exposed to hepatitis were carried out with little regard for scientific rigor or patient safety. The 1972 WABC expose titled Willowbrook, The Last Disgrace, first broadcast disturbing images from inside the facility. The outcry over Willowbrook and similar institutions led to the passage of the 1980 Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act, which empowers the Attorney General to invest state-run institutions that hold large numbers of people like jails, nursing homes and mental health facilities. 
It also led to closing these institutions and moving the residents to local settings, many of which were group homes staffed by social workers and medical personnel. Regrettably, this deinstitutionalization movement was often paired with budget cuts for the public mental health programs as government bodies across the country grappled with the economic decline in the 1970s and 80s. While places like Willowbrook could not be allowed to continue, the increased funding that Commissioner Christmas hoped would fill the gaps of the mental health care system was not allocated under Mayor Beam or his successors. Commissioner Christmas, all I can picture is Lloyd Christmas. <laughs> but uh, I looked it up. No, you can't. Uh, retired isn't the medical word anymore. I knew it. It, um, it was, where was it? Mental retardation is now obviously intellectual disability. Yeah. It doesn't say if there's a difference between physical retard. But I, I, I thought know. they were. I thought they were still. Uh, basically, the only thing you can call retard now is um, <laughs> fire. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> because it is to stop something. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The idea of it. So anyway, you could understand why Carmen was desperate to keep Frank far away from places like this. Generally, once institutionalized, you were left that way for life, or at least you had the mark of it in your record for life, essentially making you unemployable and leaving you to live a less than glamorous life. So from a young age, Frank was frequently on medication for depression, ADHD, anxiety, and various other mental ailments. Basically calling it anything outside of what it was so as to fool the system and get him on some sort of medication while keeping him out of the asylum. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And to the most part, it worked kind of. It kept him sedated enough to minimize his violent outbursts, but essentially his brain still functioned the same way in the background. While to the outside world, he seemed to become more social, more able to function in everyday society, deep inside his mind, his rage and fantasies just continued to grow. So Frank's weird hobby followed him into adulthood as he took up mannequin restoration as his career. I'm sure that's where the big bucks are. Nobody had built up a little cash over the years. He got a small settlement from a workman's comp after he slipped and fell in a warehouse in the one job he had in his life. And due to his medication, Frank was a teetotaler, never drank, smoked or did drugs and had no real social life. So when his mother died in 1979, her life insurance paid out, pay out gave him enough money to buy a small run-down shopfront where he lived and worked on his mannequins. He had like a workshop where the shop floor should be, mm. and he worked on the mannequins there. And then in the back part of the shop, he had set up kind of a bed situation for himself. Okay. Now, as I said, Frank was a teetotaler and did not drink, smoke, or take non-prescribed drugs. No, the only real vice Frank had was for hookers. Specifically, ones that look like his mother, Carmen. Did this start before or after Carmen died? Uh, this started, oh, way before. So what? He'd go find escorts that looked like his mom and go have sex with them? He'd sure try. <laughs> Problem was, though, Frank couldn't do it. Because she looked like his mom, right? I mean, no one would be able to do that. Not according to Pornhub in their huge step-parent, step-sibling category. American a weird man. (laughs) America's weird. (laughs) Frank couldn't do it because Frank couldn't get or maintain an erection ever. By Frank's own admission, technically, he only ever penetrated one woman in his entire life. But we'll get to that in a minute. So he'd regularly go to escorts, but he could never actually do the job like... No, I... 
say he can't get an erection. He can get an erection. He can't get normal erections. Okay. He can't get an erection. He can't get and maintain an erection for regular counts. sex. So yeah, he can't for penetrative sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm almost afraid to ask, but if he wasn't sleeping with all these women, then what was he doing with them? At first, it began innocently enough. He'd go pay the lady. She'd do a little striptease for him. He'd ask her to pose around the room like a model. And by the time she got around to touching him, he'd climax. This began in 1966. And according to Zito, he would do this for two or three times a year, all with the same result for about four years. What was he like as a teen? Like, was he having all these fantasies about his mother and escorts at that point? Or did he just develop that later? According to Frank, he really had no interest in anyone at that point he said the only time he became aroused was when he played with his dolls and mannequins taking them apart mixing matching molding the perfect woman frank said it was in the it was in the 70s not in his 70s (laughs) it's normal for erectile dysfunction in your 70s (laughs) frank said it was in the 70s that his erectile dysfunction first began he was 26 at this stage and was beginning to frequent more and more girls averaging once or twice a week now instead of a couple of times a year so when it came to his inability to perform the first time he put it down to a bad night the second, stress. With the third, the third, he got angry, striking the girl and strangling her momentarily before he became suddenly very cognizant of what he was doing. Putting an instant stop to the night and leaving before the girl could raise the alarm and identify him. At this point, I might add, he was still living with his mother, but he had started the mannequin restoration business from his bedroom in their shared apartment, while she continued to do business with her regulars from her room. So she's in one room doing what she does, and he's in the next room over listening while making a mannequin version of his mom to play with. Like I know you haven't specifically said that's what he does with the mannequins, <laughs> but if he's fantasizing about her and getting escorts that look like her, and he gets aroused while he works on the dolls and mannequins, then you can be guaranteed these things are modeled after Carmen. Definitely didn't help his fetish with the statues if he was listening to her moan in the next room the whole time you were. Definitely. So for the first while, Frank was frustrated with the lack of results he got with his escorts. But after the revelation from the last time, he had learned to adapt and now began to pay the girls to allow him to choke them, agreeing on a safe word and compensating them for their discomfort. Again, all done with his clothes on and his penis never goes near the escort before it goes off in his pants. This, again, seems to keep him happy short-term, seeing him over a few more years. He said it was about 1976 when this method stopped working, now needing the women's lack of consent in order to get off. So he was getting off on the assault, not the woman or the fantasy. He had to play it out for real to get the thrill. Yeah, playing out the thrill of murdering his mother over and over and over again. You see, things at home had not been going well, and the shared workspace of the mother and son brought about a lot of tension. So they were regularly fought, with Carmen regularly bringing up her concerns at the moans and noises coming from Frank's room whenever she was on the job. So she can hear him getting off on her making noises like she's getting off. Yep. Okay. Not a nice story. (laughs) This was made worse by the fact that Carmen, who was still well connected to the streets, started to hear stories of a man fitting her son's description, assaulting and strangling street girls. She confronted him on a few occasions, but Frank always denied being the perpetrator of the assaults. This continued to be Frank's MO throughout 1976 to 1979, catch and release, never needing penetration to climax, just his hands around her neck. You said earlier that he did rape one woman, or 
at least have regular sex with someone at least once. Just getting to that now. Okay. <laughs> While he denies killing anyone in this period, he does say he was ramping up with each escort visit. Letting himself push the envelope a little further each time. By 1979, he was choking the girls to unconsciousness only to revive them and do it again over and over until he felt he had brought them to the brink. With this vast escalation in his activity, Carmen felt it was her obligation as a mother and a lifelong sex worker to step in one more time and to try and put a stop to her son's actions, threatening to go to the police if he didn't stop immediately and seek help for his illness. At this point, Frank had abandoned his pills and was manic the best part of the time, just about holding it together in public. So with his rampage gearing up and his mother threatening him with incarceration, Frank finally snapped, living out the fantasy he had played out over and over again with countless women over the years. This is the nasty part for the people with sensitive ears. Earmuffs, little buddy. (laughs) Snapping, he struck Carmen in the chest, winding her and knocking her to the ground. He then mounted her, placing a knee on each of her arms to keep her pinned down, letting all his weight rest on her already breathless chest. He then wrapped his hands around her neck and squeezed the life out of her slowly. He said it felt like time stood still, but that the whole strangulation process took him somewhere between 10 to 15 minutes. He then picked up Carmen's limp body, brought it into his room, he stripped his mother of her clothes, and for the first, and from what we know only time, had penetrative sex with his mother's fresh corpse. All the time crying, asking why. Why she couldn't just love him, or why did she need all the other guys? Do you reckon he was a narcissist too? <laughs> well, she needed all the other guys to fucking pay the bills. You because she fat, did love him. Prick. Yeah. <laughs> Frank lived with his mother's corpse for about a week before he realized he had to dispose of the body. Now, the thing you have to remember here is Carmen is a lifelong escort. The cops know her well, and prostitution is a dangerous job. So when Frank called in that he had found his mother's murdered body in her room after coming home from being out of town for a week, no questions were asked. And Carmen went into the cold case files for the next year or so until the arrest of her son, Frank. Yep, top policing again helps to keep going another while longer. Yep, and that's exactly what he would go on to do. Okay... It's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that super villain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know you want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well, at least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show. <laughs> After Carmen's death and now alone in the world, Frank's private life began to crumble. Well, crumble more than it already was. Yeah. Just crumbling. But in public, he could just about hold it together, taking different mixes of prescribed medications to get him through the day unnoticed. 
Killing his mother both tied her to his mental delusions for life and freed him of his inhibitions all at the same time. The line had been crossed with the death of Carmen and from here on out it was fair game. The thing about Frank is he became unpredictable. Whereas before he selected only escorts as his prey, now he was killing couples and women from the general public. Yeah, and they had an innocent everyday white face for the victim picture on the news, so now it started to gain more attention. Pretty much. Over the months of September to December of 1980, Frank Zito went on to on a seven-person killing spree, eight if you count his mother. Now, I will state again, these are the eight Frank has confessed to. There's another five scalped women and one man who was coupled with one of the women that are heavily connected to Frank but can't be proven. So we're going to stick today with what Frank has confessed to and what a girl named Anna D'Antoni has cooperated. Why can't they be linked to him? It's actually heavily believed within the NYPD homicide unit that the other six deaths might have been the work of a copycat. The murder scenes were very similar, but time being a factor and subtle differences in the method led investigators to believe someone was taking inspiration from Frank's killing spree, which was spread out all over the front page for the next few months as he was active. I say time was a factor, meaning Frank, it would be near impossible for Frank to have committed the murders. They're putting on him here because he was too busy doing his own murder. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. So Frank's MO made him a difficult killer to catch. Having little or no previous contact with his victims and using different methods to kill each, the only thing linking each of his crimes was the obvious, and that was the scalping of his female victims. What made him start doing that? He'd take the scalp home and dress up one of his mannequins in the dead girl's clothes... So he leaves the poor girls naked oh, after he yeah. kills them. Yeah, I suppose that is an important detail to his MO. But to be fair, we're just getting into his killing now. And when we spoke of his one previous kill, I did state he undressed his mother. Yeah, to sleep with her dead body, not to see him with her clothes and hair for his weird fetish sex doll. Can't imagine a mannequin would be much good as a sex doll. Modify it. Huh? Modify it. <laughs> just want to drill a hole and stick a flashlight in, the, in yeah. between its legs. <laughs> anyway, before we get off topic again, <laughs> he, he would scalp and strip his uh, female victims, taking their hair and belongings home to decorate his dolls, which with the scalp he said would take on an imaginary personality. What do you mean? Well, he dressed the mannequin in their clothes, then he put their scalp on its head like a wig, like he'd get tacks and he'd tack them yeah. into the, to the mannequin's head skull. Then in his mind would manifest the victim as a real person in front of him who he would have full conversations with and believed to be one of his many girlfriends. So in his mind, he transferred his victim's soul into the body of the mannequin by putting the scalp on its head. Chucky doesn't sound so fucking stupid now, does it? Essentially, yeah. This man was very, very mentally sick at this point. He had snapped beyond repair, and along with his with visible hallucinations of his victims, he was also having auditory hallucinations of his mother, who he regularly still fought with while alone in his room. I don't know why, but the thought of auditory hallucinations, when I've heard about that the first time, creeps mm. me out a lot more than fucking visible hallucinations. Yeah. At least with visible I can see what's going on. Right. If there's someone talking to me and I can't see them there, I'm going to think I'm haunted they or something. They do stand up. When you listen to the uh, the mathematician that A Beautiful Mind is based on, I was listening to an interview with him and he was explaining his schizophrenia and he was saying that there's constantly, it's like there's somebody walking behind and constantly telling him that he's crap, that he's no good, that he's, I couldn't. 
By Zero's own admission, he was a predator, often stalking victims for a few days before making the move to kill. He'd find a good hunting ground, stake it out, then pick his victim usually 24 hours later, that person was dead. This began near the end of September 1980 on Rockaway Beach, not just to catch your Ramon song. Ooh. I've got relations in Rockaway huh? Beach. I've got relations in Rockaway Beach. Yeah? Uh-huh. Oh, we go see him. I just yeah. want to stand on Rockaway Beach and sing, sing Rockaway the song. Beach. <laughs> <laughs> Around 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, young couple James Brewster and Linda Walters were sleeping on the beach after attending a small beach party on Rockaway the night before. Frank had watched the beach for months. He knew it was a popular party spot and with the autumn closing in, it was now or never to seize the day. He had invested all his time in this location, watching it, studying it, seeing when and where people came and went. This was the last party weekend of the season. After this, it would get too cold and the chance would be gone for at least another eight or nine months. Frank said he watched and when he saw James leave to get firewood, he struck. Sneaking up on a half-asleep Linda Walters, he stabbed her in the back before slicing her throat and scalping her. He then covered her body with a blanket she had been sleeping under and lay in wait for James to return. When James did return, Frank nearly decapitated him with piano wire, strangling the young man to death as he sawed through his neck with the steel ligature. I absolutely hate those <laughs> scenes in horror movies. I can't, not, not just horror, any fucking movie. I can't watch them, especially when they put their hands up trying to stop it and their fingers get chopped off. We saw that in a movie recently and I can't remember which it was. I can't remember. I, we watch a lot of gory stuff, but I definitely remember his hands going well, in. Well, someone went and then the fingers just popping off. What was it? I can see it vividly. Well, I can see it. Because yeah. I think it caught me off guard and I was like, ah, oh, yeah, no, I see can't it. remember. Don't know. Anyway, the soul of Linda Walters, what? Oh, no, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> the soul of Linda Walters would become the first of his primary girlfriends who would talk to and who he would talk to and sleep with. So this was uh, his bottom bitch, <laughs> this yeah. was his main girl. She stayed in the bed with him. Yeah. In the moments where he realized the weight of his actions, Frank would cry and curse his mother. But these moments were becoming less frequent and the urge to continue his massacre would rise up again only a week after the Rockaway Beach killings. This time, the victim will be like his mother. Another working girl going back to his old stomping rounds, tagging an escort from his second round, for his second round of killings. At this point, the Rockaway Beach murders were all over the paper and the New York news stations. The gruesomeness and sheer violence involved in the act captivated the public. Who was this madman and why did he take the scalp of Will- Linda Walters? I nearly fucking... Linda Walters. <laughs> all the signs of a budding serial killer were there. A conclusion drawn by the scalp t- uh, trophy and the amount of killers and frequency of murders at that time. So uh, the fact that he took the scalp at all it was like i know it's only one set of killings but instantly the public i mean we're talking about the 70s we're talking about yeah. bundy dammer uh, fucking gacy well not dammer gacy and a bunch of others this is the golden age of the serial killer so oh absolutely the, the minute the trophy was taken it was like oh, we have a serial killer yeah he yeah. didn't even need to take the second body yet it was like we have a serial yeah. killer so, um, it was a cold October night when escort Abigail Montanay was approached by Frank, who was looking to secure her services for the night. 
Abigail, who, like Frank's mother before her, was one trick away from making rent, accepted Frank's proposal, and they checked into a nearby dirtbag hotel. One of the ones you pay for by the hour, not by the night. Yep. Yeah, I always imagined if you put a black light in one of those rooms, it'll fucking blind you. Give you a tan, at least. No. Anyway, Frank and Abigail checked in, but only Frank checked out. And Abigail was found later that night, manually strangled to death and scalped post-mortem. Frank said first he had her walk around the room posing like a model, just like he used to do before. Then as they fooled around on the bed, she made a comment about trying to help him get an erection. He then returned to kissing her, positioning himself on top of her on the bed. Then just as he did with his mother, Carmen, he pinned her arms with his knees and pressed down on her neck. Again, all the time crying, why did you need those other men? Why couldn't you just love me? As he choked the life out of the poor, young, single mother. So we have witnesses here. He checked into the hotel, meaning he had to have dealt with that. The guy on the desk said he kept his face well covered, always looked at the floor with his hat pulled low and his collar pulled up he said he could only catch small glimpses of the man but said he had a mustache was slightly overweight out of shape looking at least and was about average height so could have been anyone especially in a city the size of new york exactly the discovery of abigail montanay brought with it more press and more pressure on police a second scalped woman meant almost for sure that there was a new serial killer on the prowl around new york city but with little to link it to Zero, the cops were stumped, and as they searched for clues, they also begged for tips, running infomercials on TV and radio, offering rewards for information or leads that could help bring about the end of the case of the maniac in Manhattan. In the meantime, Frank was gearing to go again, and as Halloween approached, the maniac Frank Zero looked to strike again, this time a Saturday night. He had noticed over the previous few weeks' reconnaissance that couples would often leave clubs in between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m., and that if you spotted the right couple, you could almost be guaranteed that they would direct you to a lover's lane or a hidden car park or something. On this particular Saturday night, Frank spotted the, his prey in Tomboy and Hale Amaro, who he followed out to underneath Verizona Bridge. Both of whom were previously attached to other people had met in the club and were looking for a quick fling, unbeknownst to Boy's wife or Morrow's fiance. Frank said he watched for a few minutes as they began to have sex in the backseat of the car. But after Hyla, Hyla, that's right, you think? Oh, yeah, Hyla, Hyla, yeah. spotted him peeping, he knew the jig was up. And as the couple scrambled back into the front seat, Frank jumped up on the car's bonnet, blowing Tomboy's head to pieces with his 12 gauge shotgun. He then turned his attention to the frantic Hyla, who had curled up on the floor of the car in a fetal position, begging Zero for her life. But as she repeatedly squeaked out the word, please, Frank pulled the trigger, killing the young woman instantly and scalping her before fleeing the scene. Safe to say that one wasn't a headshot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, cops were stumped with no motive to work off of. Nothing, no prints, no witnesses, and about a decade away from the advent of DNA evidence. They were looking for a needle in a haystack. Thankfully, the woman who would see Zito's reign of terror put to an end is about to enter our story, and she is a photography artist named Anna D'Antoni. But before we get to her, Frank murdered nurse Kelly Piper near the end of November 1980. When asked about it, Frank recalled that he had been watching the hospital for night shift changes. 
that week he had noticed Kelly Piper was left waiting for her lift uh, late a few nights. The same was the case the night she died. He said she noticed him watching from the shadows across the street. So he stood out to make himself known, feeding off her fear and anxiety. Kelly, sensing the danger, began to walk towards the subway, hoping to find a few witnesses to scare off her stalker. Unfortunately for Kelly, though, the station was empty at that hour, and after a bit of a chase from Frank, she took refuge in the women's room, standing on the toilet to hide her feet from the gap at the bottom of the cubicle. Frank said he knew she was in there, and lay in wait outside the door for her to try and make an exit. He was confident, confident he had the time to play with. He had watched the station as well, anticipating it as an exit strategy and a source of witnesses, being located so close to the hospital. He knew that at this hour, any witnesses were unlikely. And he was right, because about five minutes later, Kelly Piper made a break for it, cautiously peeping around the corner to check if Frank was gone. Imagine the anxiety. I'd puke before I left the bathroom. It's straight out of a horror movie. And just like in the movies, the monster's always behind you when you're looking for it. And this would be no different as Frank came at Kelly silently from behind, sticking a bayonet knife through her torso, scalping her, then rinsing the blade off in the bathroom sink. How many is that now? Six victims since his mom. Four of them women. So he has four mannequin girlfriends running around the house now. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Full house. (laughs) A couple of days before the murder of Kelly Piper, Frank had been walking in the park when he noticed a woman taking his picture. When she walked off to photograph some wildlife shots, Frank walked over to her camera bag and spotted her name and address on a tag on the bag. Anna D'Antoni, 13 East 17th Street, 8th Avenue. Stupid fucking move. Yep. Especially in a city like that and a time like that with everything that's going on. Even from then on in. Never put my name and address on. That was all around in the 50s, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know, after that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Stupid Anna. Now, Anna herself admits that she was careless and gullible at that point in her life. In her early 20s and living independently in a foreign land as an artist. She was a Brit. Mm. she believed in peace and love and freedom and she thought everyone else did too and you know just your typical bohemian artsy type but a bit more upmarket yeah she said that when frank turned up at her door inquiring about the picture she had taken of him she got so swept up in the art talk with the stranger that she didn't even think to ask how he had gotten her name and address in the first place and then agreed to go on a dinner date with frank so they could further discuss art and get to know each other a little better if someone randomly showed up the fucking door here Mm. And knowing what you did for a living mm. and knowing even in this podcast if someone turned up at the door knocked on the door and was like hi are you the guys from that podcast I'd be like no no sorry got the wrong house yeah. Close the door call the cops yeah, <laughs> um, both Anna and Frank described the first night as being fun and I admitted to enjoying Frank's company and his curious opinions on art the one she said that stuck out the most in hindsight was his theory that a portrait, either painting or photograph, captured a person as they were in that moment for eternity, essentially giving the artist ownership over that image forever. 
I say it stands out in hindsight. No, because the mannequins started out as his art and through the scalping and dressing of the mannequins, he forever captured his victim's soul in his art forever he's to play with. See, that's the thing about these artsy types. Like what we see as a red flag, she sees as artistic views. (laughs) Either way, the pair hit it off and began a short relationship. Short because while Frank looked to be holding it together publicly, privately he was bursting at the seams with his hallucinations worsening and his paranoia and anxiety growing worse by the day. So I'm sensing there's something different about this Anna girl. He doesn't want to kill her, does he? No. She's not like the rest of them. She was someone he could see himself in a relationship with, someone who might ground him, help him exercise some of his demons. Unfortunately, this would not be the case. And in early December of 1980, as he visited Anna on a photo shoot, Frank would mark out his last victim. Model Rita Clayton often collaborated with Anna on photo shoots for fashion magazines and advertising campaigns. The day Frank came to visit, he watched for a while before leaving, staying outside the building until the shoot finished and Rita left to go home. Following her to her building, he waited for her to settle into her home before striking. And as Rita lay in her bath soaking after a hard day, Frank burst into the room, forcing her head under the water and holding her there until she passed out. By the time she woke, Frank had her naked body hogtied and tossed up on her bed. Frank said he snapped and all he could see was his mother. He said he couldn't remember what he said to Rita, but he does remember that her last words were, please don't kill me, to which he replied, I wouldn't kill you. I love you. I want to keep you, before plunging his knife deep into her back. He said this was the one case where the victim wasn't dead yet when he took the scalp, and that he had to stuff her underwear deep into her mouth to stifle the sound of her screams so as not to alert the other residents in the building. Fuck, this is too much. But it'll show you as well how he saw the killing of her as the possession of her. It's almost like mm-hmm. like what the Zodiac killer used to say, that yeah. he was killing these people so they'd be his slaves in the afterlife. But he was telling her, seeing her as his, as his mother, mm-hmm. telling her, I wouldn't kill you, I love you, I want to keep you, and then stabbing her as soon as he says, I want to keep you, you know? So obviously taking the scalp and putting it on the mannequin meant, like, I'm bringing you home, Mm. you know? So, yeah. Anyway, Frank being the nice guy he was, he sent flowers and attended Rita's funeral, giving Anna a shoulder to cry on. Dirty fucker. Not long after the funeral, Frank and Anna arranged to take in a take in dinner and a show but on the way to dinner frank wanted to first stop off at the cemetery to drop in a christmas wreath to his mother's grave which she claimed to do every year well this is like the second christmas she's dead yeah he did it last year and he's doing it this year so every year whatever i don't know why i tried to find out logic in these guys actions anyway anna agreed and they went to the grave of carmen zito here frank placed the wreath down and knelt to say a prayer in her memory But as he got further through the verse, he became more and more emotional, until he was blubbering incoherently on Anna's lap. Anna tried to calm him down, but Frank just started to repeat, Rita knew, Rita knew, over and over again, getting more and more aggressive each time. He then made a grab for Anna, who pushed the kneeling killer off balance, giving her just enough time to get a little head start. Well, why did he snap at Anna at this point? I thought he wasn't planning to kill her. He's completely lost it at this stage. He's now constantly talking to the mannequins at home. And they alternated from egging him on to kill to scolding him for his actions. So he's all over the map at this point. He chased Anna into a foggy field of cement memorials only to lose her. 
Anna hid behind a large headstone waiting for Frank. She had gotten her hands on a gravedigger's shovel and when Frank spotted her, she took a swipe at him and stabbed him, injuring Frank and allowing her to escape and make her way to the police station to report Frank as the maniac killer. At this point, Frank said he forgot about Anna and went full manic, having severe audible and visible hallucinations. He said he could hear his mother scold him, and just when he got her to shut up, he saw her burst from her grave in the ground. Good enough for him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fucking hell. That's a good punishment, all right. Yeah. Here comes your zombie mom to fucking give you a spanking. Badly hurting away in La La Land, Frank struggled to find his way home. But like an injured animal looking to make its way back to its base to die, Frank made it there and back to his waiting imaginary audience. Frank then said the last thing he remembered before waking up cuffed to a hospital bed was seeing all the girls he killed come towards him like a horde of bloodthirsty zombies, tearing at his wounds and ripping at his flesh, tearing him apart piece by piece, leaving him nothing more than a sloppy mess of blood, guts and viscera. Jeez, the mind's a hell of a torture tool when it wants to be. Sure is. The reality of the situation, though, was it was all a fever dream or hallucination brought on by his mental illness. Either way, as we said at the start, Frank the Maniac Zito was found on death's door in his apartment after a tip from Anna D'Antoni and will go on to die in hospital six months later while still in recovery. So unfortunately, his case never made it to trial. But at least he was stopped. Yep. And not a moment too soon. But that's it for Frank Zito and that's it from us for this week. Come back next week when we got a bit of a treat for you. Instead of a regularly scheduled show, we'll be giving you the debut episode of our new Patreon exclusive show, Playing With Bones with Amy Rose. And giving you a taste of what's coming up every week on Patreon. Do you want to tell them one more time what the show is and what sort of topics we might be covering? They'll be sick of listening to it. <laughs> yeah so like this week the 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 taster episode i suppose they were doing on wednesday it's, it's all kind of like bizarre deaths bizarre like deaths. historical deaths and i did one of those deaths on the weekend update yep so so after you finish listening to this mm-hmm. the weekend update should be up and you can check that out and she does cover one pretty cool death and we got a bunch more coming this wednesday on the main feed for one week only before we get back to our regularly scheduled topics yes so along with that we also have part two of jeffrey Dahmer on real monsters as we said and we we were talking about it because we recorded the weekend update before the the main episode this week and we talked about the fact that we started jeffrey Dahmer thinking it'd be a one episode thing and got a quarter way through the script and we're like an hour and 40 minutes into the show and we're like oh (laughs) we might need to stop or maybe we just recorded an hour and realized it was going to go way longer i don't know either either way it's the first part that's up second part will be up on tuesday hopefully that will be the second part of two could go three we don't know depending yeah. on how many times we go off topic mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll find out uh along with so along with real monsters i'm playing with bones if you check out our patreon you'll also get all our mini swords early they all go up all four of them creepy past scripts and mini monsters they go up on monday on patreon mm-hmm. and you get ad free access to both it's a live alive podcast and the iaa weekend update that's on patreon.com forward slash it's a live alive pod and it's only five dollars a month 
And for all other updates or to see what we are up to all week, check us out on all socials at Alive Alive Pod and at Amy Rose AIAA. I keep expecting you to say AmyRose.com or something like that. I don't know why. Amy my mind is. AmyRose.com sounds like a porn song. <laughs> <laughs> I will check that out in a few minutes. And with that, we're out of here. See you all next week. Same Alive Alive time, same Harvest channel. See you. Love you. Bye bye. I love you. Bye bye.